Hello and welcome back to MD Filmopolis. Thankfully we survived the zombie horde but only just. I'm still looking for the rest of my leg. I'm Mike, an actor and producer. And I'm Phil, a writer and director. And today, via Skype, we have a very special guest with us. Australian actor and future award winning actor, Matthew Waters. Best known for the cult children's TV show, Round the Twist. And soon to be known the world over for a little film we've been working on called Own Worst Enemy. Hi, Matt. G'day, g'day. How are we doing? Excellent. Thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast with us. No worries. All good. Just for our listeners, we're letting you know Matt is in um, New South Wales, Australia, and we're in the UK. So for us, it's now uh, 12, 10 past 12 in the afternoon, and for Matt, it's about 10 past 9 at night. Is that about right? Crazy. I'm in the future, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, for the people joining us, Indie Filmopolis is a podcast dedicated to indie films, covering the making of our very own low-budget feature film, Own Worst Enemy, and as well as the indie classics, rarities, cult hits, and new releases that we all love. In previous episodes, we've talked about the writing of the script, pre-production, and our first few weeks of shooting it, but this episode, we're going to get a different perspective on the film from one of the very other few cast members in Own Worst Enemy, Mr. Matthew Waters. We'll also be chatting to him about his other acting work, what he's up to at the moment, and in honour of Matt, we'll be ta- talking about some of our favourite Aussie indie films. But before we kick off, we want to give a quick shout out to our amazing Indiegogo supporters. As ever, thanks so much for your continued support. And if you found this podcast by any other means, big shout out to you too. Thanks for joining us and supporting our podcast. So let's just jump into it. For those that don't yet know, Own Worst Enemy is a low-budget British dark comedy drama that centres around a reclusive man named Andy and the fictitious friends and enemies he creates in order to justify his self-imposed exile. It's written and directed by Phil Pugh and stars myself as both Andy and the imaginary foe Mr P and among the very few other cast members, Matt Waters. So, Matthew, tell us a bit about your character Perry. So <clears throat> Perry Chambers is—he's uh, a bit of a scoundrel, I guess. Um, he was—I uh, assure. Well, in my mind, he, he lives on a housing estate. He's not got much of a, um, you know, a, a drive to to become anything more than what he is, which is really a pain in the ass to society. Um, he sees a. Uh, an ad in the paper um, for a job to go and get some groceries. Um, and when he rocks up to Andy's house after sort of having a look and deciding oh, I might take advantage of this, um, realises that Andy's a, a bit of a strange character and uh, and sees, you know, some opportunity there where he might be able to pull the wool over his eyes a little bit and, um, you know, benefit better than uh, than he's expecting. And yeah, it just takes a pretty dark twist from there. <laughs> so, uh, you're an Australian. Your character is known as a very British version of a chav. Um, yes. Uh, what experiences and inspiration did you draw upon to get into that character? <laughs> Good question. Okay. So, a little, little story here for you. I, um, I moved to the UK when I was 16 for about six months to get out of Australia and um, explore something different um, independently. I, I 
I came over there on my own. Um, I had some friends who I knew in London, who and a, a good friend of mine, Paul, who I was, um, who I came and lived with. And uh, I went for whatever reason to Oldham in uh, Manchester. Okay. And I ended up at a shopping centre there. I think I was visiting a family friend of of one of my family friends or something like that. Anyway, we were waiting at the bus stop to get on a bus, and I had a packet of Cadbury Snaps. They were amazing. Tastiest chocolate I'd eaten ever. And I stood at the bus stop with this guy who who's a friend of mine, Kyle, and uh, this little 12-year-old kid comes up to me, and he had a pair of plastic, like, latex gloves on. And um, he had this – and he was, like, dressed in Burberry and had the Nike dry fit hat on and all this kind of stuff. And, like, the fashion back then, you know, this must be – God, 12, 13 years ago or something now, like was totally outrageous to me. We didn't know what tracksuits, like Adidas tracksuits and stuff. We didn't have that in Australia. It was all surfy yeah. clothes and whatever. So this little kid comes up and he's like, give us a fucking chocolate. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like I was about 16 and this dude was, you know, tiny. He was really small. And I was like, fuck off, idiot. No way, you know. And uh, and then he, he says it again, and I'm looking at Kyle, and I'm like, is this kid serious? Like, what? Go away, man. Haven't you? Like, go away. Anyway, next minute, two guys come around the back of the bus stop, and they were like, they were older brothers of his or something like that, and they must have been about 22, 23, and literally, like, come over and told me to give him my chocolates and then wanted my phone and my wallet and all this other kind of shit, and I was just like... And, Fuck off. Anyway, luckily the bus come and we, we got on the bus and I didn't get rolled by a 12-year-old kid for my chocolate, <laughs> but it was pretty close. So that was like, as soon as I read the script and I saw Perry's character, that instance instantly went through my mind and I was like, he has to be this kid. Like, yes. he's just a wanker. You know? <laughs> if he was, you know, I'd, uh, I don't know. I'd, yeah, anyway, that's, yeah. So that's where it come from. Pretty. Yeah, Chaps and Burberry go together like toast and butter. These, uh, yeah. These, yeah. <laughs> I later learned when I left and then moved back to England when I was, you know, in my, I turned 21 or something and I, I came for my long stint, six years. Um, I did get a very good understanding of the different cultures of London and all over England, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, do you remember how you got involved and what were your first thoughts on seeing the script? I vaguely remember, I think somehow me and Bill got in touch on, so like over social media. I think you were doing some plays at the time? Yeah, it was literally when I first, almost when I first moved over, I think I'd only been there for maybe not even a year or yeah. just a, maybe a little bit over a year that's i did spring awakening i was going up to manchester to do spring awakening i think it was around that time that i that we got in touch because i was like yeah i'm only in manchester <laughs> and then i think you posted a clip from a short film you don't if i remember correctly it was called scroller do you remember that oh yeah 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 that was like uh <laughs> yeah that, the clip that you posted, it was you, if I remember, you you beating up your girlfriend oh, and throwing a prank through the window. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's Perry. Because I, I, I was really <laughs> yeah. struggling for anyone, um, you know, I had no thoughts who could who could be Perry. And it, I think originally he was a bit kind of student-y. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was more student-y, like uh, trying to find a, a job to supplement his uh, burgeoning yeah. budget. Then, but when I saw you in that short film, I was like, oh, that's perfect. Like, if we sort of, like, transpose that kind of performance <laughs> into to Perry, that'd be just um, ideal. And then, luckily, uh, you seemed up for it. So, yeah, definitely. Um, Always cool. up for it, mate. 
So um, what did you think about the script when you first read it? Obviously, I was pumped as soon as I as soon as I, it was such a different character to something that I got. I mean that that stroller clip was. I used to go and do some work for. Um, um, God, what's the school? There's a film school in Ealing um, that teaches you know basically everything to make a film without an actor. Met film school. Met. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So. I, I used to go, they would pay me as a regular actor to come in sort of two times a week and work as an actor to be directed by the students and all that kind of stuff. And that was one of the students' um, films that he was that he had written. And it was awesome doing that because every single week you were working with a different class, with different people, and you got to see how the minds of creative people worked and how different every single person is, even if it's the same concept, it's so different, you know. And that that was a great um, growing part of my career, even though it was, um, you know, well, not amateur, but student, you know, it wasn't a professional gig. But still, you, I learned so much because I met people from India, Russia, you know, Portugal, like all these different people from all over the world would come just to one place and make films, and it was, yeah. Awesome, really good thing to be a part of. So, do you remember um, coming up to do the rehearsal with us? Uh, I do, yeah. It, it might I have did, been like a few, I... fair few weeks before we actually did the film. Um, yeah, it was. But like for for us, I remember because Mike is like seventy, eighty percent of the film is just him talking to himself. And when we were rehearsing it, we never got a sense of what the the film was going to be like. So when you came up that one time uh, to rehearse with us. Um, that was like the first time that we got to kind of see how any of the scenes were actually gonna gonna be because we had no idea how Mike's stuff was gonna be until we got it back to the edit. Um, yeah. So for us, that was like hugely beneficial. Was that kind of, you know, you talked about not um, looking too much into the scripts and stuff, but was like that rehearsal as beneficial for you as it was for us? Absolutely. Like whenever you do something practical like that, that's where you really get to build your character. Yeah. You don't. You know. Every you could read a, a thousand scripts, but uh, and like sitting in your living room. But until you have someone in front of you who has an idea, and you have your idea, and those two ideas come together, you really have no idea whether it's the right path for that character or if that is the route you're going to take. And there was definitely things. I don't think I could specifically name them, but there was things where I'm, I had an idea of how something was going to work with Perry, and then the second we got into the audition room, uh, sorry, the rehearsal space, and we yeah. started running it, it completely changes the tone, you know, even, and I guess for me as well, because it's such a different style of writing to any scripts that I would have ever worked on in terms of the, the black comedy part of it, you know, none, that's not Australian um, film, you know what I mean? Like the average Joe in Australia probably wouldn't get a lot of it because it's not their sense of humour. Without making Aussies sound like a bunch of redneck idiots, a lot of the humour that goes on over here is so, so blatantly in your face. Yeah, and, I've seen and, it. You know, yeah. Yeah. I've yeah, seen like the like Paul Hogan when he was doing these comedy stint before he even did Crocodile Dundee. There was a notorious scene where he was yeah. going to grab a couple of melons off a shelf and the woman moves it and a breast are in the Yeah, make them, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just so yeah. obvious. And a lot of it is that, like, very visual, very grotesque, you know. Carl Barron is a, is a great example as a, as a stand-up comedian from Australia who, and I think he hits the nail on the head for the majority or for, you know, the average joke in Australia where it's, you know, 
uh, just silly little puns and, and, and toilet humour and things that Aussies would relate to growing up in their childhood and all that kind of stuff. So for me, when I read the script, I mean, living in London completely changed me as a person. Mm-hmm. I come from someone who was so isolated in Australia, we're so far away from the rest of the world, to being thrown in amongst, you know, the, the, the mix of the world, really. Um, so, but even still, when I read the script, I was pumped. You know, I was like, this is amazing. It's something so different. And I get to be this character. And I'm all for aggressive aggression too. Like my character, my, my, my type, I'm never going to be cast as the, as the heroic hero, romantic lead. You know, I'm not Brad Pitt. So when I get to my, my, what I enjoy doing is that aggressive, you know, psychopath, drug dealer, drug addict, you know, um, gangster, whatever, those types of roles I really enjoy because it's, it's not what I am in real life. I'm a softy, you know, I'm just chilled. <laughs> so when yeah. I get to do those things, it really pumps you up. And, and yeah. yeah, being a, that was, it was a great couple of days filming, just getting to throw you around the room. <laughs> That's something you're going to ask yeah. about. Um, cause I've had like experience working with actors where they, they don't really want to get that physical. They, they've got, you know, their yeah. stage, uh, combat train and whatever and they want to yeah, do yeah. that and it always looks shit but you, you and mike you really kind of went for it um i get yeah. if you kind of answered that really but sort of um if you might how was it sort of well yeah you know, i like i like the the, the straight on confrontation you, you've got to have that uh you've got to have that trust straight away but not only the the trust you've got to have the sort of the unwritten signal between the the people you're working with, yeah, just go for it. I don't yeah. mind. The amount of times I've had to tell yeah. actors on other sets, look, you're holding back, don't. Just go for it. I can take it. Just yeah. get in there and do yeah. it. So um, don't worry about it. My biggest thing, and this has come out a lot since I started really casting properly. Like, I started doing bits and pieces as a freelancer in London for, like, TV commercials or, you know, small productions or whatever. Yeah. And you... The biggest thing, when, when as working as a casting director, you see hundreds of actors every week and you get, again, you get to see all different styles and how people draw and whatever. And the biggest thing for me is it, it's realism. It's, it's like if, I can, if I'm watching something and I, and I can see that the actor is actoring and not being, if, you, if you're not even going to be that character, just be yeah. you, you know, yeah. don't put on this performance it's not like on stage it's totally different when you're on stage you can act you can overact and whatever but film is so subtle and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for watching stuff and I turn it off halfway through because I'm, I don't believe what I'm watching you know and that's you have to you have to go for it you have yeah. to throw yourself in there if you're doing that scene and you're thinking about anything to do with your daily relevant life that's you then you're not there and you're not in that scene and it's not going to be believable. No. So, uh, yeah, I'm all for it. And there's some great stuff of, like, um, you know, big famous actors who, like, something to do with Chris, I, I can't remember what the film, that Chris Hemsworth or something, who's, like, literally fisting someone in their face, like, punching them solidly in their face to, to it's a real, you know, it's got to be real. It's like $500 million budget or something like that. Come on, you know, it's got to be real. Without damaging the person. So, yeah, it was awesome. I thrive on that. And it's great when you have an actor opposite you who is going to go just as hard as you are because it makes it real. 
you know, and, and those types of situations we don't really get into on a daily basis anymore. No one's walking around with their sword or their cudgel or whatever, you know. So I remember you those said... confrontational things, it's, yeah. again, I guess when you, when you kind of step on set, I think it's been a thing that I've kind of um, gone by unconsciously throughout my career. Mm-hmm. But whenever I step onto the stage or in front of the camera, it kind of, unless it's relevant to my character or to, to what I'm doing, I don't pay attention to it. So the difficulty of me being able to perform for that length of time or remember my dialogue or, or whatever, that all just kind of goes into the back of your mind and you go on this sort of autopilot thing that mechanics my body, yeah. but my brain's ticking over as Perry, you know. So, look, I... I I'm not the type of person to say nothing's challenging, but I don't recall it being challenging. You know, it was, I was in the moment. And when you're in the moment and you're on fire, nothing's a challenge. It's, you're just there, you know. Awesome. When it's finally finished, how do you hope Almost Enemy will be received? I just hope people enjoy it, you know. I just hope people, I think it'll be well received. I don't think people are going to watch it. I mean, from what I've seen from it, I've only seen clips of me and you. Yeah. you know, maybe two or three minutes long, and, and it was raw, you know, rushes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I don't know. I think people are going to love it, man. Like, it's a, the story behind it is you don't want to stop finding out what's going on because it's so twisted. It's so <laughs> – yeah. it's what is coming – it's almost Inception-y, almost. You know, it's like, what yeah. the fuck is happening here, man? Who is this bloke and why is his house full of VCRs and tapes? What's going on? And the phone – the, that was one of the best parts in the scene, man. The phone bit is so good. It's like, you know, just expecting digital and having analog, and it's, he doesn't even know what to do. And it's so relevant to kids or teenagers in today's time. We're so far advanced, and we're always in our phones, and people just lose all, all that shit is going to get lost eventually. It, it, it'll be films like this that people go. Kid, some kid will watch it, and well, actually, I don't, can kids watch it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe in a few years. <laughs> yeah, but they'll be what's what is that? You know, what's that thing? Oh, that's a VCR. You know, they came out before. I mean, even DVDs, man, they won't know what's going on in twenty years. So, yeah. no, good. Brilliant. I think people are going to love it, man. And yeah. I think it respect it shows the great respect to British culture and indie filmmaking. Like it's. This is what you guys do every day. And, you know, the indie scene are going to love it for sure. People who watch indie films down. And then it's going to go big and go to Hollywood. Why not? I'll, yeah. uh, I'm up for the second one. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be a ghost. but uh... That's right. Yeah. I would, you know, there's a, there's a magic, there's something mystical going on. Perry's now, yeah. you know, got a third. Ego, and it's somebody who's taken over his body from the future. And they, he's they, they, forever they, here on Andy's shoulder telling him what to do. Or that, yeah, 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 or that. <laughs> Take his head and graft it to you, become a horror, <laughs> cut a film, whatever. It's, what are they called? Slasher films. How did you first get started in acting? I started at a, like a dancing school when I was <laughs> six years old or something like that. Um, I started doing karate as a kid when I was like four and I did that for about two years and then I randomly came home 
and said to my mum one day that I wanted to learn to go to dancing lessons or something or singing lessons. So we went to this um, place called LA Talent School in Liverpool in Sydney, and it was above. It was a room or a studio in a gym that there was, a, and there was a squash court there as well. I'll never forget it. It was, it was ingrained in my mind. But it was very early '90s, like Australia. It was awesome, and uh, I think I, I was there for probably for a year or so, and. My parents could see that I loved dancing and I loved to sing and whatever. And then one day my mum saw an ad in a magazine over here called Woman's Day. Yeah. And it was to um, audition, for, open audition calls for The Boy From Oz, a musical that was going on in Australia about the life of Peter Allen. And uh, my mum said to me, do you want to audition? And I said, I've, what do I have to do? And she said, go and um, you have to send a video of you singing a song to these people, and, and if they pick you, then you go and meet them and whatever and go through the audition process. And I was like, yeah, no worries. So they, I sang Imagine from John, by John Lennon. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and then I sent the video in. There was 2,000 videos that were sent in to play the role of young Peter Allen, and they were looking for three boys. The criteria, I believe, at the time was like 12 years old, dark, um, sort of darky brown hair um, and tall and thin. And I was like a midget, mate. I was tiny, <laughs> you know. I was really small. I was eight years old. Um, I had ginger hair and freckles. And, yeah. So, anyway, I, I went and my they, they picked my video. And then we went to Her Majesty's Theatre. And 200 boys were selected out of the 2,000. And just went through the process and ended up being between me and three other boys to play the lead. They were looking for three, and they chose me. And then they chose me and two other guys, and, which was awesome. And then after the rehearsal periods, they chose me to do the world premiere and all the press and all that kind of stuff. And uh, by that time, I'd got an agent, um, and it kind of started from opening night of Boy From Oz. I was all over the TV as this new, you know, this new little Aussie iconic Ginger Megs type dude. And, <laughs> yeah, and then... You must have had something there that they would have seen. If you were... Absolutely, yeah, I guess... Ginger and small, <laughs> the dark head and tall, you've got to have had yeah. spark there. I think it was like I was fearless. I still am, but, like, I was just fearless as a kid. You know, you couldn't... Tell me anything. I, w I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. Not in a bad way. I was a really naughty kid, man. I was. <laughs> I must have been. No, surely not. Man, dude, honestly, I was on detention every day in school. Like, I was an asshole of a kid, but I wasn't a bad kid. You know, I would never would have wanted to hurt anyone or whatever. I was just, I'd always be talking or I'd always, you know, back chat to my mum and dad or whatever it would be. So I think that played a massive role in it because I was just like so full of energy and outgoing and happy to talk to anyone for however many, nothing scared me. Getting up in front of 2,000 people and singing, yeah, no worries, easy. So, and it's always been like that up until this day. I think that's why I just kind of continue to work. It's just what I want to do. I don't know how to do anything else. Well, I do, but I don't, you know. <laughs> I've been doing this for so long. This is what I've got to do. And, I, and you've got to just make it work, you know. So, yeah, that's how I started. And then, like, um, Boy From Oz, I got the audition for Round the Twist. Um, they flew me to Melbourne, and I'd watched Series 2 
um, with Jeffrey Walker playing Bronson, mm-hmm. like religiously every day I come home from school, it'd be on. So as soon as I heard, I was like, hell yeah, I'd love to go and, you know, be involved in this. And like everything back then was yes. It was, yeah, 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 I'll go I'll do it. I'll do it. You've got to go to Melbourne for two years. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And my mom's like, oh, great. I get my husband so my half-old kid can be on the TV show, you know? <laughs> so, no. Um, no, it was good. Oh, shit, yeah. My, I, I wouldn't have a career without my family. My mum stopped working, drove me around everywhere, you know. And there was I, – I spent more time on film sets as a kid in primary school than I did at school. I was mm-hmm. constantly on film sets. So my mum had to. And, 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 and my brother and sister, you know, they went – I took the limelight from everyone, and I don't think I ever I, – I, to this day, I'm the last person to want to talk. This is the most I've ever spoken about my career. I don't talk about it, you know. I never, unless I'm doing an interview for a specific reason, um, until I had my day job as a casting director, people asked me what I would do, and I said, oh, I fix mobile phones. That's what I was doing in London. Or I'm a sales, selling computers. Or, you know, I never bragged about it because I always got picked on as a kid for being up my own ass and I think I'm better than other people because I'm on TV and all this kind of shit and I was just so far removed from that. It was my mum and my grandma and my nan who really looked after me and took me set. Uh, you touched on around the twist. Uh, we've got like a lot of Australian and British and American listeners so I think if you were born in the 80s and 90s and you're Australian or British you'll know what around the twist is but for anyone Absolutely. else unfortunate uh enough not to not know what it is how would you pitch the show because i don't think saying it's a family in a lighthouse and crazy things happen that doesn't quite encapsulate no i mean round the twist if you want to see you know the minds of a real 80s aussie bloke and just just go back to paul jennings like read his stuff watch anything that he made read any of his books and that's where you know, that was Aussie TV at the time. Mm-hmm. It sat and connected so well. The, I think the family makeup of the, um, of the, of the family, of the Twist family is, you know, how the interaction between the two of them is so honest to true Aussie general living. Yeah. But then these things, these situations that happen, you know, the ghosts that haunt the lighthouse or, you know, uh, pissing on a tree and a guy becomes pregnant and has a baby through his mouth like or swallowing a fish and having a whirling dervish as my willy as a propeller then I can swim fast like you know I don't think it really would take that much to sell it and like Round the Twist was sold to 71 countries around the world like I don't think America got it I don't think it, it broadcast America but you know I had people from Russia Germany um Bulgaria, Spain, Brazil, like all of these countries around the world where people would uh, write letters before this was before the internet and like social media, they'd write letters to me as a kid and send them to my agent and I'd get all these fan mail and I was just like, well, it's crazy. You know, now it's nothing to be seen by anyone around the world. But back then, like Mm -hmm. for me as a 10 year old to know that some kid in Russia is racing home from school to watch my show. That's crazy. Like, it blows your mind, you know? Mm-hmm. It's it's a privilege to have been able to become a part of somebody, oh, m- millions of people's lives, even if it was for a split second and it just took a bit of, you know, the realness of life out of their day. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. 
you know, mm-hmm. what we do it for. So you brought up the um, the whirling dervish episode. Yeah, you remember getting? I thought I'd better because everybody who talks to me about round the twist brings that episode. It's only that ever. <laughs> do you remember like reading that script and thinking? Did it seem odd, or were you just like okay, anything cool. that happened in round the twist was not odd to me? Yeah, like that sh- I was Bronson as a kid before I even was in- involved in the show. He was me. That's I, I, I'm sure because like I literally the day of the audition, I went down there in the morning, flew down to Sydney with my mum, went into the room, auditioned, and by three o'clock they told me that I'd got the role, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't even leave. I, I was given the role in the building, and that I've never, even to this day, never heard of that happening. So unless like an offer or whatever, but uh, yeah, I think I just I was. It was as if it was written for me. And and Jeffrey Walker, uh, he was the same, you know. It's like he was born 10 years before me and then I was – and it's like every 10 years they're spitting out a Bronson <laughs> kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, nothing was strange to me. I was just pumped that I didn't have to be in a classroom and I got to do this crazy shit and do stunts and like you know I was adamant any of the stunts that I that you see even though they're not massive but any of the stunts yeah. that happened around the twist was me I was adamant you know one episode rolling down the side of a cliff face the cliff face where I stopped was actually then about a 200 foot drop or some shit or 100 foot drop like it was sheer cliff side um, but I was adamant that it was going to be me doing it you know I, I'm yeah so yeah I don't care yeah nothing was <laughs> swallowing a fish and having why not? Say, uh, we've got a very British mentality here of health and safety, and oh my, my child can't see this. I mean, did yeah. anything have to get run by your parents? Any of the scripts? Yeah, or... yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, no way. No, the scripts back then. You were pretty then, much man, game for anything, yeah. Absolutely. But like back then as well, like there was nowhere near the restrictions. I don't, even, I don't think you would be able to put round the twist on a new version. You couldn't write those scripts and get yeah. them passed these days, get away with it on the TV and have it, have it filmed in a modern way. Like, you just wouldn't get it. It wouldn't happen. But, but back then, no one give a shit, man. It was just whatever, you know? And as long as I was happy, they were happy. And it wasn't hard to keep me happy. Just get me to do fun stuff. And I was all over it. So, yeah. There was – in the season – in the next season, uh, in season four, um, they – there were things, I, there were times when I would go in with the writers and they'd ask me questions. And then they started building um, episodes around conversations that they would have with um, us kids, the Twist kids. And there was one, I, I really wanted to have an on-screen girlfriend. So they wrote right. that into one of the scripts. And I wanted to be a superhero in a series, in an <laughs> episode. And they made me a superhero. And like, um, yeah, right. so it was awesome. Like, yeah, getting to actually be part of it was good. And then that season, we won Logies. So you're welcome, ACTF. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Brilliant. So um, I think you had a small role in... Uh, PJ Hogan's Peter Pan film, which yeah. I was looking it up, had a hundred million dollar budget apparently. So how does massive. how does working on a film with such a massive budget like that compare to TV or the little film, The Almost Enemy, that we did? What's the, what's the difference? Is it more more people, more stuff, or is there a general kind of different mentality? There's it's the same mentality. Well, for me, it was always the same. Yeah, but um. There's a very different atmosphere 
when you go to something like Warner Brothers Movie World Studios and you film on a lot and you walk, you know, just the whole thing of rocking up to the Gold Coast where it's known for its studios and you get off the plane and I went up there on my own. I was 14 and I got to do everything by myself. No chaperones with me. Nothing was awesome, you know, and to uh, get off the plane and be picked up by a driver and taken to the to the lot, and then you got your own trailer. And like the the the, the scenes that I was working on in Peter Pan, they rebuilt the streets of London in between the big sound stages. So it wasn't actually indoors; it was out in the sunshine. Well, it was night shoots when we did it, but you get to set, and it's like beautiful paradise day up on the Gold Coast. And I don't know, you walk on, and Jason Isaacs is sat there having lunch, and you know, you go and sit down next to him and have a chat and have some food, and then pick up a basketball and start shooting hoops with Jason Isaacs at like <laughs> you know twelve o'clock of the day. So like things like that happen. Yeah, but I. You know, that's that's the difference. But when you're doing – and obviously, there's heaps more people and the rigging is huge. Like, you, I remember looking up at nighttime and there were plumbing pipes, like thousands and thousands and thousands of these pipes all across um, four or five sound stages. It must have been like the size of a football stage, like pitch. It was huge. And then someone flicks a switch and it instantly starts raining and there's lightning and it's all outdoors. You know, it's just crazy, crazy shit. Um, but that was sick. I got up, I got to go out there for four weeks and I think I was on set for maybe seven days out of that four weeks. And then I had an all access pass to Warner Brothers Movie World and I got to go and ride roller coasters all day and, you know, it was just, being in uh, Disneyland, you know what I mean? It's the same thing. It was crazy. So that's huge. And then the same thing with, what's it called? With uh, the Pacific. That was another huge budget. Huge. And that was all shot in, in a rainforest, but still the same sort of thing, you know. Not that there's any, any performance um, or, or, or storytelling difference or, you know, the enjoyment that you get from watching an indie film as opposed to a blockbuster. But the way it's done is just on another scale. It's insane. You know, yeah. money what is I, just... <sighs> one of the things I remember from one of my first acting gigs, I got to get a, a role on um, the film of Cracker with Robbie Coltrane. Um, yeah. And uh, it was shot up in Manchester. It felt very isolationist almost. Like everybody was doing their own little thing. Everybody was deep into it. I felt we almost need to, I need to earn the right to be here. Even though I've made it there, I felt like I really need to be super, super professional now. And you, you just, I just felt like stepping out of everybody's way. Whereas working on Almost Enemy became very, almost like family orientated. You knew everybody's first name, you know, you just got on, yeah. you had a laugh, you had a joke, you had to relax. I think my my experience to it would, I guess, be different in the sense, number one, because of the age I was when I went to set. Like, I, and, and there's a bit of a, a story behind Peter Pan, which I'll burst through quickly. Um, So I was doing Oliver in Sydney at the Lyric, and PJ Hogan came to Sydney to audition for Peter Pan. He wanted to audition Aussie kids to play the role of Peter Pan. Yeah. So he, and just by chance, he came to watch the show, and I was on that night. 
And uh, next day, I get a phone call from my agent saying, PJ Hogan wants you to go in and audition for the role of Peter Pan on, on this new Peter Pan film. And I was like, okay, awesome, you know. And that was literally just from him watching the show, and he said, I want to see this kid. So that then sort of kicked all that off. Go to the audition. I, I, I don't know whether it was the next day or whenever it was. Go to the audition. PJ's there. Um, real, really enthusiastic to see me, you know, super happy. And it m- made me feel very comfortable. And um, get into the room, do the audition. Halfway through, he gets a phone call and he calls cut. And he's like, I've got to take this. It's LA. It's like, no worries. Takes the phone call. It's the producers in LA. And it's them confirming Jeremy Sumter has they, they want him as the as Peter Pan, so and he was like, they they had confirmed him over mm-hmm. PJ. It was like this is it, this is who we're having. And I mean they're the client, they're paying, so it's yes, you know. Gets off the phone and he's like I, and he was just blatant and upfront and honest with me. You know, he was like that was the clients in LA. They've chosen a Peter Pan. It's, I'm very very sorry to bring you in here and put you through this and get your hopes up, but I can't, I can't do anything about it. And he was like, he loved me, you know, without sounding like a dickhead. He loved what I was doing. Yeah. So he then, and you know, I was like, mate, whatever. This is, you know, all good. I've had plenty of losses. It's whatever. Anyway, then a few, um, a few days go by and I get another phone call from my agent and she said, PJ Hogan's written a role or, or they've expanded on a role to give you a few scenes and he's offering you the job. Do you want it? I was like, fucking nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's how that all kind of started. So my, my interpretation of being on set and I guess coming from a few different things that were in the public eye for a few years, yeah. the way that you get treated when you come into a set then is very, very different to – you know, uh, I guess not, and, and this is mainly pri- primarily because of my age. You know, a 14-year-old kid, you can't bring a 14-year-old into set and treat them a certain way and expect them to, you know, earn their right to be there. They're there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas now, when I go to set now, I've just recently shot a Woolies commercial work. Okay. And uh, that was like the formalities are there. But no one's holding your hand and no one's like, you know, walking you around set like they did when I was a kid. So I think that's, yeah, that's the, that's a big difference. It's got, it's definitely individually different for each actor who goes to set. But, um, I've luckily, thankfully, and, and I've had a great experience throughout my time. You know, I've never really felt like I should, I need to earn my right to be on that set. I'm there because you wanted me there, mate. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Without being a dickhead. <laughs> so we kind of touched on it a bit then. We were um, we found when we were looking preparing for today, we found this clip online of you and Daniel Radcliffe, and I guess it's a similar yeah. situation as for the film December Boys. So yes. how how far along did you get in that process? And can so, you give us some context to that clip? I don't know how. I think this was all organised by my UK agent Paul Byram. Mm. He he knew that it was casting and London at the time and they were casting in Australia and he's this was before he was my agent he wasn't even an agent at the time he just loved the industry so much Mm -hmm. and um, he said to me you should be going up for this you've got an Aussie you're an Aussie and you've got a name and you've done work and Daniel Radcliffe isn't Australian and uh, you know 
he's 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 huge you know he was the biggest child actor of my generation you know he's like fucking daniel radcliffe you bastard <laughs> with your dollars you never have to work again you prick no i'm joking anyway so um do, do we edit this that, i can't remember <laughs> no no it's not like as it is forget so anyway he uh there, so he worked, he, he got in touch with whoever was casting or in Australia and organised me to go to Spotlight Studios in London. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a really good sell job. Whoever he spoke to sold me really well to them because they organised for Daniel Radcliffe to come to Spotlight Studios and screen test with me. Okay. And in comparison to him, a, a nobody, you know, yeah. I was nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then, so it all, got, it all gets teed up. And we get to spotlight. Um, I get to spotlight first, and uh, Daniel gets there eventually. And so this, it was almost confirmed. I was basically told that I've got the role to be okay. in here, but they just wanted to see me mm-hmm. next to Daniel because we're supposed to be brothers or stepbrothers or something. Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to be a younger brother. So yeah. I'm sitting there, and like the night before, I'm rewatching Harry Potter, and I'm going, I've got to be smaller than this guy. You know? Like he's he's. He's not tall or uh, he, he looks taller than me and all this kind of shit. And I'm weighing it up. Anyway, we get there and I'm sitting in the room and Daniel Radcliffe walks in and I swear to God, I'm, I towered over him. He was tiny and, I, and you know, he just looked physically smaller than me. Yeah. And I was just like, as soon as I saw him, I was like, bro, I'm not going to get it. But <laughs> I, I, I can play your younger brother. It's just not going to happen, you know. So we do the screen test anyway, and, I, and he was great. I talked to him, and I, I, I don't think I asked him to sign anything from me. I should have, but, um, yeah, and he, we, we had a conversation. And his mum at the time, I believe, was his agent or something, yeah. or his mum is an agent. Yeah. So he's like, oh, he, said, he starts talking to me, and he said, oh, I'll come downstairs, and I saw your resume on my, or your CV on my, on my coffee table this morning. And I was like, oh, did you? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you, you played Bronson in Round the Twist. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I love that show. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> come on, son. Like, <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, awesome. I really like Harry Potter, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but then we get into the scene and we start running through stuff. And I was like, I, you know, really one of the only times – by that time that I really prepared for something before I went for it. You know, I was like on, on my shit and, uh, he, we get into it and he's like holding the script and I'm delivering lines to him and I just getting his forehead and I'm not seeing into his eyes. And there was just no, was you know, a, I was, you, you there was could, nothing. Yeah. You could which is fair that. enough. He doesn't have to give me anything. It's not a million dollars, mate. Why? <laughs> Exactly, you know. No, but yeah. So, and I was just like, uh, in all honesty, like I think he's a, he's a decent actor. He does a few different things very well, and there's a few things that he doesn't do very well. But yeah, the <laughs> Australian accent was, was spot on. I've never heard the word yeah. "boyo" done by an Australian by an English yeah. actor ever so well. I know. Yeah, Oscar winning. No, but um, yeah. So, and I, and I was honestly, I. It sort of, you know, a bit. I knew I hadn't got it because of the size difference already. But you could have at least, you know, done 
put some effort into the into giving me a, a leg up, you know. Mm-hmm. And I even said to the producers, "Swap the roles. I'll play the the young the older brother. Just yeah. like make him the younger brother." And yeah. like obviously that wasn't going to happen, but mm-hmm. you know. So, but yeah, that's my story with James Radcliffe. He was a lad for about ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were in the UK as well as acting, you did some casting. You worked as a casting director as well, which you've taken on in, uh, to your work into Australia. So how did you end up uh, becoming a casting director and getting involved behind the scenes? It was literally just something, you know, as a kid for 10 years or so, from about 8 until 18, there was never any, it was endless. There was job after job after job and I was constantly booked and I was never at school and bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. So I get to 18 and I think I've done this for a long time now and I wanted, you know, I wanted girlfriends and I wanted my car and I wanted my mates. And so I said to my family, my parents, my agent, I want a year off. I don't want to do anything. I'm not auditioning for anything. I just want to go and get a normal job and I want to experience what life is like as a, in a, in a job that has no status, you know, where there's no stigma to it. So worst mistake I've ever made in my life, but you know, we won't go there. And um, uh, I took that year off, um, and then when I come back to it, I really, I very quickly realised that you get out of it for half a second, and it takes you a long time to get back in. You know, people forget very quickly who you are and what you've done, and how many people you've helped in over the years. You know, there's a lot of, well, not a lot. There's a few directors and uh, producers out there that I've done jobs for in the past where it was, I'll remember that. You know, and then the time has come, and I'm talking the biggest musical theatre producer in the world who uh, said, oh, you'll work for me again, and to this day I haven't. So, you know, then it gets – then you become an adult and you lose that um, real spark quirkiness, that thing that everyone just is gravitating towards you for, which was this outgoing little kid. Mm -hmm. You're just an everyday adult now. So uh, that slowed down and I was like – I was still obviously working. I was still – busy but it wasn't the same and I thought you know I devoted my childhood and my life happily and wouldn't and no regrets about it to the to this career and to this industry and I thought I've, I've got to make a living you know doing something in this business and I thought what can I do you know I, I don't have time to go and train and study and whatever, and I, I need to use the resources that I've learned over the last however many years. By that time, it was about 16 years or something, 15 years that I was in the business. And I thought, casting, I've been to millions of auditions. I know how the process works. I know talent when I see it. I, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't blow smoke up anyone's ass. Like, if you're good, I'll tell you, and if you're not, I'll, I will tell you in a nice way, you know. So, improve on, yeah. Yeah, and how you can, in my opinion, if that's what you want, how you can kind of get there in, in how I see it happening, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, casting kind of naturally was the easiest thing, I guess, for me to get into and, and make a decent money. You know, I, I didn't want to work in shops anymore and do all that bullshit. It's just, you know, acting in my career was my uni, I, my 15 years of uni getting a degree. So um, I thought I, I, I've earned my right to earn a good living doing something that I will enjoy doing. Um, so I just literally emailed all of the age, uh, all casting directors in London, every single one of them, got the Spotlight database and I emailed all of them. And I just said, this is me, 
I've been in the business this long. I've got 5,000 hours plus on set, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and the main thing was I'm always available. You call me and I'm there. I will always fix your problem, you know, just accommodating as much as possible. And sure enough, there was 10 at least in the first day that emailed me straight back and said, um, we need someone to come in and sit on the desk and take names as the actors come in, or I need someone to read the script opposite or whatever, whatever it was. And, um, I believe it was Brendan McNamara at Beach Casting. I think he was the first guy who sort of got me. Yeah. And uh, then I just managed to sort of tick around to different freelance casting directors in London for about a year or two. Um, And then I landed a gig working at the BBC, and I was a casting assistant to um, Derek Barnes, who was a casting director there. Actually, multiple casting directors, but mainly Derek and a girl called Laura cast doctors and casualty and eastenders and um that was my taste of corporate you know working in a massive company um and yeah worked there and then i just by the time i was ready to leave london it had sent me broke it had um changed my life and it introduced me to my now wife and it's given me my son and i it's my second home you know i love London for what it's given me um but mainly it gave me casting you know the business there is well not mainly excuse me wife yes, and kid. Yeah. <laughs> but um <laughs> mainly career wise it gave me casting and it gave me the opportunity because the business is there the hustle is there there's 60 something million people in England there's a lot more work going on and that and the, the there's still the fire you know here in Australia it's very quiet it's very slow you know, I work mainly in advertising. I cast advertising, TV commercials, because it's quick. There's a lot. There's always going to be TV commercials, and there's always going to be actors needed for them. So it's just the machine that turns, you know, turns over job after job after job. So I'm kind of just building my reputation here now. Seven years now, I think I've been casting for. Wow. And uh, yeah. And um, you know, I'm working for for a company here. Um, at this point in time, but you know, there's, I'm a very ambitious person and I think the industry needs a shake up and it needs some fresh blood. Like a lot of the, uh, organizations that run and govern our society these days, there's too many old bastards in it, you know, need freshies. So, um, yeah, in, in some time, my son's only 10 months old and I'm, you know, we're just getting back on our, in our groove, but, I will be taking over Australia, that's for sure, eventually, cool. with cast. Yeah. Excellent. So, um, as both a seasoned actor and a casting director, what advice do you have for any actors auditioning? What are the major do's and don'ts? And do you have any stories about major don'ts that you can... <laughs> um, you know what? I think the biggest thing not to do and it's not as outrageous as what I think, you know, you were hoping for. But the biggest <laughs> thing not is don't go into a casting or go, don't go into an audition thinking that you have any idea about what they want. You've got no clue. You're, you're not going to know that the, the, the director, the producer, the client is going to know that they like you the minute you walk through that door. And unfortunately, 99% of the time, it's based on your appearance. It's based on how you look, 
and if you physically fit what I'm looking for. Because people, you know, there's times where I bring people into castings. Okay, I've got one for you. So I'm auditioning, I'm auditioning um, glamour models for a TV commercial for a supercar. And they wanted, you know, they wanted like Instagram women with tattooed sleeves and edgy, you know, different coloured hair and all this kind of stuff, tats all over and piercings and whatever. And uh, I found a whole bunch of, you know, obviously go through the motions and I did a bit of street casting for this one, went to some tattoo parlours and all that kind of stuff, did some uh, Instagram hunting and brought in a bunch of these people and, like, my day was going great. You know, I'd have girl after girl coming in and they they looked like what they said they did and they sent me the photos and they all looked the same and blah, blah, blah. This girl turns up, and she's about, I don't know, like, she's not a size six, which is kind of, the the brief was like six to eight or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and like, full, like, leather lycra clothes and big, huge, spiky boots on and all this kind of stuff. And, I, and she just was out of place for the... She didn't fit the brief, and I'm I'm like, who are who is this person? What are you doing here? And then she tells me her name, and I go back to where I was, you know, submitting uh, my submissions had been coming in, and I bring up the photo that she sent in, and it was it was another person, like it was literally it was her, but it was about fifteen or ten years prior, and just totally different. And I was just like, you've like you can't do that. I've got to know what I'm working with, you know. So. Yeah, that's the, about as outrageous as it, as it gets. But mainly, don't go in there ex- thinking that you know what they want because you don't. You have no clue, and and the the you'll only do yourself damage. You'll only um, cut yourself short. You know, just so be yourself. Fit the brief. If you fit the brief, you're you're halfway there. <laughs> as long as you look like, uh, or you know, similar to what if it says I'm looking for a 30 year old guy from Portugal. Then look Portuguese. Or and, don't, 30. <laughs> and 30. Yeah, you know what I mean? So that also, like, I do it myself. And, oh, I did. Now that I've worked as a casting director and I understand the process and the ins and outs and all that kind of stuff, and when I go for it, benefited me massively because I go for auditions now and I don't care, you know? You can't care. You just have to go and do your portrayal of that character to the best of your ability and if you get the job, you get it. And if you don't, yeah. you don't. You know, that's how the industry is now. There's no guarantees. The minute I walk out of the room, the day yeah. that I audition, I forget about it. There's no point. That's it. You've no. never. I, I literally just missed out on a thirty thousand dollar job for a wine company, a TV commercial, yeah. to run for three years, and it was paying thirty grand. And like, I could do with thirty grand right now. Like, and it was between me and one other guy, and uh, he got it. And you know, so what? I never you had know, it. It only costs a hundred pounds to rent an assassin these days, and you know, the job's here. <laughs> mate, I don't, I don't rent anything. I'll just go and sort it myself if that's what oh, happens. <laughs> what you Wait outside of his house with a little baseball bat, you know, balaclava. <laughs> don't need them kneecaps, pal, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I would hire a professional, but I'm budgeting. <laughs> uh, no. On the other side, Matt. So someone who's looking to cast a film, what have you, advice have you got for them? Have a good idea of what you want. Yeah. You know, know what you're looking for. Give me as much information as you can possibly give me about the character and about what's going on in your mind as to how you see him walk, or walking or how you see him speaking, whatever. Just 
it's got to as be as descriptive as you can because the person's there, and and also be open to seeing people that aren't established actors and yeah. have big names, and mm-hmm. that's that is the problem with we just get the same recycled shit all the time, you know, and then it, and then it ends up becoming the Morgan Freeman of Morgan Freeman and the Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp, you know, there was a time in my life where I thought Johnny Depp was the most versatile actor I've ever seen in my life and blah, blah, blah. And don't get me wrong, he's a great actor, but wardrobe and makeup are amazing and special effects are amazing and it really helps to change your perception of, of that actor as a person and a character, you know. So, you know, there's great talent out there and there's people who... Probably my generation of actors are almost the last ones where we almost had a fighting chance of becoming successful in and, and achieving that dream that you dreamt of when it was when it was a, 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 an immature one of I want to be rich and famous and a TV star or a movie star, you know. Now that's those the yeah, it's just totally changed and and that is getting further and further away even for people who have had massive careers in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why, yeah, you've got you to gotta have something else. That's why I got into casting, because otherwise I'd be broke. The acting, there's no money anymore, you know. There's just not. And, and, and I see it in terms of, especially in terms of uh, marketing and advertising. Like, you, people used to pay stupid money to buy the rights to your image for their product. And now there's roles, that briefs that I'm putting out, and the people are saying, oh, you know, clients or produ- production are saying my budget's for the entire job is 100 grand. And you're like, well, back in the day, that would be your casting. And, mm-hmm. and the rest of it was the other 900,000 to make that one commercial for McDonald's, you know? Yeah. Now, it's, it, there's no money anymore. So, it's, yeah. Right, we're going to move on to uh, Aussie films. Mad Max, 1979 film, obviously starring uh, Mel Gibson. Probably his first major role that anybody recognised him in. Directed by George Miller. Um, so for people who haven't seen it, a brief rundown. It's a, in a dystopian future. It's a big road movie, lots of fast cars, lots of um, fast bikes. And it's about a vengeful Australian cop who sets out to stop a violent motorcycle gang. And that's the blurb. What have you seen of it and what do you like about it? So when watching Australian stuff as an Australian, there's a, I get a different perspective of it, I guess, than anybody who's watching it internationally. So, you know, when they're screaming down the, the back road in the bush in that, Ford Falcon or that Holden Commodore yeah. police car, <clears throat> like that's the car that I was driving around in with my family. You know what I mean? So <laughs> that um, th- things like that resonated with me, and I, I haven't watched it for a long time. And I think when I did watch it, I was probably twelve or thirteen. I was a young kid, so um, I mean, I watched obviously the new big blockbuster, but that's not this. It's just no comparison you know the original film i love it has that real aussie um grading the texture the picture that you see is what i remember when i was young watching 
TV. You know, it's yeah. all the it's all on film. There's no digital. It's all on yeah. on a reel. You know, um, so I love that about. I love that it has become the name Mad Max has become what it is, and it started as somebody's little imaginary scenario. You know that all films, I believe, start with. But it's just it's amazing to see one slowly progress and and span over such a long period of time to go from that to becoming a worldwide sensation with Tom Hardy and you know yeah. it's just yeah so. But I mean, in terms of a film, great, awesome story. Who doesn't love post-apocalyptic scenarios, um, dystopian future things? Yeah. You know, I think that's something that people now, in modern times, really uh, want to escape to and go back to those things because it's exciting and it's and it's you know fighting to survive and it's all those kind of things that now we it's so far removed from what our daily life is now it's just so bland you know yeah. so well, I'm really, one of yeah the one thing I, I like about mad max is is it came out only a couple of years after star wars and obviously somebody had seen that and realized there's no sort of flip side to this and yeah. of course during the 70s one of the big sort of Money grabbing films were chase movies and road movies, especially yeah. in America. And it seems to me like um, George Miller's just looked around and gone, How the hell is there not a movie like this in Australia? and just yeah. gone ahead and made it and done it. And, yeah, and it's like, yeah, this is the quintessential <laughs> Aussie film. How has he done this already? Yeah, no, that's that, absolutely. I could, yeah, totally. He's uh, <laughs> definitely saw a gap in the market and just went, Well. Yeah. Car chases, police chases, you know, cars getting rolled over. We've got plenty of space over here. There's nothing out in the bush. Let's do it, you know. Um, but it's awesome. still got that, you can see the influence, but it's got that uh, definite Australian touch, like you say, with the choice of cars and the, the deserts yeah. and the, the camaraderie yeah. that goes on between the police officers and but things like that. None of, none of that would have been, you know, thought of in the process of making Mad Max. They were just Aussies making the film in Australia, and that's the, that's the cars that we had to work with, and that's yeah. the landscape yeah. we had to work with. And it's just awesome that it has, you know, I think Australia is one of those countries that has a very good stereotype. Like, the stereotypical Aussie is a bit of a bogan who's probably a little bit racist and, and, and swears a lot, you know? And... Apart from the racist bit now, which fuck racism, but uh, <laughs> everything else, it's pretty much you know it's pretty much right. So it's it's awesome that um, we have had a chance to make our mark as a culture um, through film and television, and 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 there's some stuff that comes out of Australia that really can't be beaten. You know, there are some things that have been made that are just films like Romper Stomper, Jesus. Yeah. One of the most amazing films I've ever seen in my life, you know, and Russell Crowe at his best before Gladiator, before he was the the hero, you know, demigod. Yeah. He was just an Aussie and, 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 and well, a bad Aussie. And, but there were, those people were real. And he, put, he was portraying a real situation and a real time that 
is still going on today. It's just a different change to the race. You know, it's no longer the invasion of the Asians. It's the invasion of the Muslims to Australia. And, it, and uh, in, in a sense, I, th- I feel like we're kind of 10 years behind the rest of the world on that topic. So, well, man, no, get... no, remember, the rest of the world is still on that same side. Well, now we, are. we were making some fucking progress, <laughs> but we seem to be going backwards. Are you up to anything yourself, acting-wise? Anything you, uh, you're you um, getting into at the minute, other than your casting director work? And yeah. Is there anything um, you'd like to plug while you're here? So, acting-wise, I'm. there's been a few decent roles that have come through, but as I mentioned earlier on, in you know, there, there isn't a lot happening in Australia for... Um, you know, big budget or, or anything. There's a lot of writers, but there's not a lot of money. So, you know, nothing, not a lot gets green lit. And, and, you know, I think I've auditioned in a year, maybe four or five times for a role in something that is a film or a series um, with a decent character. Since coming back to Australia, I think I've done about 12 different commercials though. So like, it's just, that's, that's the actor's bread and butter. If you can land commercially if you can if you fit that commercial look it's great you, every couple you, of months you've you can make definitely got that wombat look about you just talking about it. the wombat yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. wombat with you and chris hemsworth yeah i remember oh the possum the possum oh, was it the possum? Yeah, yeah 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 that was the foxtel yeah that was good i got some voiceover for chris hemsworth it was awesome being a part well oh yeah uh, you're on my cheek list mate yeah <laughs> <laughs> It did yeah, sound like you were making half that shit up. You were saying that. It, mate, very like, no word. We were in the no word of a lie. We were in the uh, in the recording studio, and the create executive creative director was like just throwing stuff at me through the door with like writing <laughs> on. Yeah, you know, just start, try this. Try this line, or try you know try that. Um, but yeah, it was pretty much on the fly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a lot of it is just to, just doing TV commercials, man, and. Um, theatre, I love doing, I love getting on stage, but again, there's like two big theatres in Sydney and most of the stuff that's going on in Australia at the moment is touring and I can't, I'm not going to do that because I have a child and a wife and I'm not going on tour. No, it's just crazy. Um, so yeah, I I cast, um, a film, it's called, uh, Christmas Down Under. Um, it was due to be released or bought and released for this Christmas. Um, hopefully it's going to happen for next Christmas. There's a few bits and pieces that are going on in, in the behind the scenes of that that's sort of blocking it. Um, but we'll see what happens with that. It, it is a great story. Um, and it's, it's an Aussie Christmas film. It's like, you know, one of those good family shows that's going to come on at Christmas time. Um, that's been written by, um, all local Aus- Australian people, and yeah. it's all Aussie. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to see that go ahead. Um, but no, other than that, man, my time is uh, casting and uh, m- making a living to have my son have whatever he wants. And, and breaking the mould of the casting world. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, 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 breaking the mould. Mate, it's already broken. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> oh, well, of course. Matthew Waters, it has been an absolute pleasure not only to see you, but to hear from you yes, again. Thanks, yeah, it's a been... great big love to your family. And yeah, man. Uh, we're just going to sign off here. Yeah. And before you go, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Twitter, Facebook? Oh, man. Yeah, 
Look, I'm 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 on. Uh, I still am on Twitter. I got verified. Worked very hard to do that, and now it's irrelevant because <laughs> no one uses Twitter anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm on Twitter sometimes. Like, uh, but Instagram or Facebook me or um, yeah, sh- shoot me an email. Go to my website matthewwaters.com, Matthew with one T, and yeah, tells you all about me and what I'm up to. And uh, my email is matt at matthewwaters.com. Shoot me an email. Happy to chat to anyone. Excellent. Thank you again, Matt. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, that's a massive extended thanks to Matt. It's awesome to have him on. Um, And in honour of uh, Australian actor Matt, (laughs) we're going to talk about some of our favourite Australian indie films. Uh, Matt talked about Mad Max. He did, yeah. He was talking about the, the massive impact of it. It was made, I think, for... Met three hundred and fifty thousand Australian dollars and went on to gross about hundred million US dollars, which is insane. And for for a long time, it was um, the most profitable film of all time. No wonder they made sequels. Yeah, absolutely. I can't think of any kind of British films that kind of mirror that success. The only thing that a British film that's, that's done fantastically well for such a low budget, I think it's got to be the full monty. Yeah, which we'll talk about in a minute because we've got to tie into that. Um, oh. Do you have a favourite scene in Mad Max? I don't know if it's a favourite scene, but it, it, it's a scene that stuck with me. Um, and it, it was sort of the first introduction to me of an anti-hero because mm-hmm. that's, what Mel, that's what Mel Gibson's character became. Yeah. He was thrown into these circumstances as a police officer. He does his duty at the start, he's with his friends. But the scene that resonates with me is the final one. Yes. Where he catches the final bad guy, the the real sort of um, cries into everything they do. It's nothing to do mm-hmm. with me, boss. That sort of sniff. This, yeah, the snivelling uh, villain, uh, the, the young lad. And he. He cuffs him to this car and allows the petrol to pour onto yeah. this lighter until mm-hmm. it finally explodes and gives him the ultimatum. You can cut through the cuffs in about 18 minutes, but mm-hmm. you can cut through your ankle in about three. Mm-hmm. Words to that mm-hmm. effect. And he gives him a choice, but it's not really a choice of anything. Yeah. And as he drives away, of course, uh, the car explodes mm-hmm. and he just walks away into the distance, but it, it's a cold blooded murder. Yeah, and for me that was the first real. I didn't know people could do that. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was more shocked by it because I was young when I saw it, and it was my first introduction to a an antihero, and I didn't quite know what to make of it after that because mm-hmm. that was pretty much the end of the film. Yes, yeah. I mean, something Matt um, re- uh, touched upon was the difference in culture. Yeah. Uh, from this film because it was a, an Australian film it's, it's about an Australian film as um, This Is England is a British film mm-hmm. you know they're ingrained in the cultures that they are and I imagine from an Australian point of view that's that's a good ending to an Australian film yeah he's killed the bad guys mm-hmm. it's all done but for me as a young British lad watching it was like wow they can do that mm-hmm. that's certainly my favourite part of the film the one that sticks out when I was re-watching it it instantly reminded me well I instantly went oh that Saw stole that and yeah. saw, saw those 
we'll talk about them again in a, in a bit, but they are Australian and obviously that kind of resonated with them and that is exactly the the end of Saw, isn't it? He's, yeah. he's chained and he can either try and cut through the thing or he, he decides to chop his fucking foot off to get out. Yeah. Um, another bit which I found really weird about the film was mm-hmm. a, bit, a particular character um, and I don't know why he was introduced or the relevance of it, but Near the start, the police officers are shot at, and one of them gets shot in the throat. Yeah. And then he gets fitted up with this voice box. Yeah. And there was no plots or significance to the voice box other than it's a character with a voice box. Yeah. So I thought, what a bizarre thing to just put in a film. Mm. Was it like it had never been put in a film before, therefore I'd like to show it in a film? Mm. Sort of. That's what I got. Possibly, yeah. The first time I watched Fargo, and you see Frances McDormand's character, and she's pregnant, heavily pregnant, and instantly yeah. I thought, oh, for God's sake, I know where this is going. The pregnancy has nothing whatsoever to do with the plot. It doesn't yeah. even come into it beyond her morning sickness. Yeah. Um, it's it's that kind of thing. It just kind of throws you off a bit. Surely this must have some significance. No, she just happens to be a pregnant woman. Okay, the next film... Is Romper Stomper. It's a gritty drama from 1992, directed by Jeffrey Wright and famously starring Russell Crowe. For those that haven't seen it, it's a group of skinheads that become alarmed at the way their neighbourhood is changing, and for their point of view, not for the better. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the, uh, they're a group of racist skinheads and I think they're Vietnamese, not taking over the neighbourhood, but coming in and buying and running businesses and this group doesn't like it. Watching it, I was expecting something like Made in Britain by Alan Clark, but this is far more gritty and realistic and, and brutal. What's different about it is it isn't a story of redemption. There's no character arcs whatsoever. It's a tale of violence breeding violence and just literally nothing good can come of it. There's some really great touches to it. One of the um, one of my favourite things about it is the sound design. Yeah. There's a, a massive, massive brawl between the Vietnamese and this group of skinheads, and sort of laid under, not too subtly, but fairly subtly, there's the sound of a pack of dogs attacking each other. Yeah. Just nice touches like that to underscore the violence and the, and the mentality really of these uh, these people. Next film is Mary and Max from 2009 this is a stop motion animation by Adam Elliott um, and it is pretty much these two characters these are the only two characters you hear and they're voiced by Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tony Collette yeah well Tony Collette in the later bits a, a different a, a young girl does play the, yeah. the young girl version for the majority of the film of Mary and that that's uh, part of the tale it's, it's the tale of the friendship between two Pen pals to unlikely pen pals, Mary, who's a lonely eight-year-old girl living on the suburbs of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Of course, like you say, voiced later on in her adult years by Tony Collette. And Max, who's a 44-year-old, severely obese and autistic man living in New York. It's this long-distance relationship they decide to have. They don't have mobile phones, they don't have emails or internet that they use to communicate. They they live for each other's letters. Mm-hmm. And despite and it's a film about this far-reaching friendship that they feel deeply about more than anything else. It's plasticine, stop-motion animation. Yeah. 
and um, it's a film you could watch and say, well, that could have been done live action. Yes, it's true. But he chose to do it plasticine. And it's black and white as well, and grey and yeah, colourless so the, as well. The, the New York stuff is black yeah. and white, and the the Australian stuff is sort of like a, a shitty sepia kind yeah, of look. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's got some lovely moments, some bit of humour in there. Mm. There's a moment where Max goes off for a doctor's appointment and the receptionist points at a set of chairs and, yeah. and it says, please take a seat. Mm-hmm. And the very next scene you see Max sitting on the subway with one of the seats because that's what it says. Yeah. Be, being autistic, he takes things literally. Mm-hmm. So Just nice little moments like that. I thought it was great, really smartly written. I love the, the recurring um, musical motifs. There was a, a piece of music that were, was recurring that wasn't just part of the soundtrack. It was uh, also the Muzak in the supermarket or it was you know part on the TV show that they were watching, you know, that kind of thing. And I, just, I love the way he'd almost choreographed some of the, the pieces to music. And the whole thing seemed very well thought out and choreographed conceptually the whole thing like you said it's these two people writing letters to each other and it that is literally the film yeah. it is mary writes a letter max writes a letter mary writes a letter max writes a letter that's a nice um concept for a film but i think he didn't quite know how to end it i, I thought yeah. the ending was a bit disappointing it, was, uh, it seemed a bit of a it seemed cop a bit out long to me it felt like it was a, this yeah. is a good film but he it felt like a film that could have been condensed down to even less than an hour. Mm-hmm. That is the problem with like a, a sort of a, a concept-led film. You can either do it in a short, or you got to have enough stuff to make it work as a feature. And yeah. I'm not sure. I think you're right. I think it was a bit too long. Maybe a 70-minute version of it would yeah. have been better, because uh, it was an hour and a half. It's and a it ve- was stretching it just a bit too much. But like I say, it's still a good enough film, nonetheless. There's so many great things about it. Yeah, it's yeah. very. Very sweet and poetic. It was very well received. It's in the IMDb top 250, 176. So it's you know it's well regarded. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. And I think aside from that, stop motion animation is um, a very kind of underused medium. You don't get too many feature length stop motion animation. So it's definitely worth checking out for for that alone. Yeah, you can thank Gardman for mm-hmm. bringing it yeah. to the forefront. Yeah. Okay, our next film is the 1986 comedy Malcolm. Um, This is a crime comedy directed by Nadia Tess and it's about a dysfunctional man called Malcolm who is chronically shy but a mechanical genius and has just been fired for building his own tram. To help pay for the bills he takes in a roommate who's just been released from jail but ends up getting involved in some robberies. I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very uh, inventive and original and creative in a weird way there were aspects of it that reminded me of um home alone in the the way that the the kid creates all these um elaborate sort of mechanical exactly, traps and traps and all those kinds of things yeah essentially this guy malcolm he is a sort of he is a bit reclusive i mean he to collect his milk he has a remote control car and <laughs> sends a remote control car with an empty milk bottle on the top of it to the the corner shop in the hopes that the um the woman will you know, put in a full bottle. But yeah, it's full of great visual gags. Just some completely insane stuff. He invents a car that splits into two, <laughs> into two halves. And so he, yeah, he takes in this guy who's just been released from jail, who's a, a bank robber. Malcolm's fascinated by him. And he goes from being this kind of very innocent guy who makes these weird 
gadgets and contraptions to inventing gadgets and contraptions to rob banks and people and the the final heist where um, he and his roommate and the roommate's girlfriend all pull off this incredible heist with these gadgets that he's invented. It's just I've never seen anything like it. It's sort of almost Wallace and Gromit-like, harking back to the um, stop-motion thing. Obviously, this is live-action. One of the things that really stuck out with this film was the score, which, if you haven't seen the film, you will have definitely heard the score. The score is by uh, the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, and if you haven't heard of them, again, you will definitely know their songs because probably half the, the the tunes from this film have been used in countless commercials and other films. Napoleon Dynamite being one of them and tons of phone commercials. Excellent. That's all sounds like one definitely worth getting. And this is a special film. This is the story of the Kelly Gang. Now, the reason this is special is because it's recognised as being the very first ever made feature film. Unfortunately a lot of this film was lost. It was made in 1906 and it was directed by a guy called Charles Tate and it's the first in the series of what was known in Australia, because it's an Australian made production, as the Bushwhacker films. Mm -hmm. Bush Ranger I think. Bush Ranger, sorry. I was watching this and I thought what on earth? And I was trying to place it. I was like, maybe I'm being too critical, maybe the were many films to take inspiration from and then I thought well, what's the closest thing that you could compare this to and I thought about the Great Train Robbery yeah. which was made three years before which is a much much better example of that genre of film yeah. this is a terrible terribly made film I, I understand it's really important because it's the first feature film yeah. and it was super successful and showed that there was an appetite for longer films so clearly you've got to rate it on that but as an example of a silent film from that era, it's an awful example of a silent yeah. film. I mean, American films, they, they got where they were today because they experimented, they tried different things. Um, I mean, one of the, the probably most famous scene from The Great Train Robbery mm -hmm. is when the cowboy right at the end shoots into camera. He, this, was, this was inspirational mm -hmm. from a lot of directors that they could do all these things. And they were always experimenting um, with what could be done in front of the camera and to the audience. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the story of the Kelly Gang, like you say, there wasn't much story, plot or anything else. It was the story of the Kelly Gang and that was it and there wasn't much going on. The, the bit where that, that scene where he comes in, it just goes on forever. He come, they, they drag all these people out the house and nobody seems to care. And the, even the, the main actors are just rubbish swinging the guns around and then the cart pulls in and clearly you can almost hear the director shouting at the guy on um to back the the, the wagon in so you can see what's written on the van <laughs> well, on the on the wagon um and then they drag him up off the um the stagecoach and sitting on the, the stagecoach is a kid probably his son or a worker and the kid's just casually sitting there watching as the the dad or the employer He's getting beaten up and he just doesn't care. And then they drag all the women out of the house and they just kind of stand around looking bored. And then they send the women back into the house and they very cordially, single file, amble back in, not bothered that they've been robbed. It's just a bad example of a silent film. And to be honest, I've got the feeling that it's only so long because they didn't know what they were doing. If they knew how to make a film properly, yeah. it wouldn't have been that long. It is an important film because it is the first 
feature length film and it did incredibly well and did show that there was an appetite for feature length for longer form uh, films but as a film itself it's just it's not good at all the far better examples of films made years and years before our next film is animal kingdom from 2010 uh, this is a crime drama by director david mitchell we'll call him that yeah i'm not sure that's great <laughs> Uh, it stars Jackie Weaver and mm -hmm. Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah. It's about a 17-year-old who navigates his survival amongst an explosive criminal family and the detective who thinks he can save him. I can't recommend this film highly enough. It's one of the best films I've seen in the last 10 years. Mm. It's about this criminal family, but it's at sort of at the point in their lives where they decided to give up criminality yeah. yeah so you know that they're they've got a criminal past but you're unaware of their crimes as such so you can really only judge them on what happens within this film okay and the police are after them for the understandable reason of their history but you don't know their history other than they're quote-unquote criminals so the the police go after them with the intent of just wiping them out and so slowly one by one they essentially take them out and because you don't know the past crimes there's a really kind of weird viewer dynamic because you're yeah. like well i do actually feel sorry for this uh, family particularly the mom uh, played by jackie weaver who's awesome she was oscar nominated for this film but also at the back of my like but they are criminals um so it's a really kind of weird viewing experience okay but it's brilliant and this is the film i think i, I must have seen ben mendelson in other stuff but this is by far his best performance that I've seen and he really kind of shone in this um, and I think Hollywood took notice of him after this because he went on he's the the main bad guy in Rogue One he's the main bad guy in Ready Player One he's the new sheriff of Nottingham in the new Robin Hood film he's mm. the go-to Hollywood bad guy at the moment which is kind of unfortunate because Hollywood bad guys are kind of one-note characters in this film he's so much more than that he's essentially his character's completely psychotic but he approaches it in just such a, a unique and, and different way. Um, it's absolutely kind of mesmerising to watch. Excellent. Okay, the next film we're going to cover is a family movie from 2006 called Opal Dream, directed by Peter Catanillo, the same guy who directed The Full Monty. Yeah. Um, but this film is about a young girl's relationship with her imaginary friends, and it resonates throughout her town in the Australian Outback. I was kind of trying to think about a family movie, which, yeah. um, but the, there was another thing that kind of stuck out for me about this one was the imaginary friend element, and obviously <laughs> with West End of me. It's a completely different take on um, on the imaginary friends to what we've done. Yeah. Um, but the, the one thing, I don't know about you, but when I'm watching foreign films or non-British films, I really like films that are set in places that I wouldn't... Uh, find in Britain, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. th this place is set in a a very kind of desolate Australian outback town where yeah. the the population of the town pretty much are opal miners, which okay. is kind of like wow, okay. And essentially, it's it's set up at the start that you can rent a plot of land, yeah. very kind of like small square footage of land and mine it for for opals and that's how these you know this town these people who come to this town make their living looking for opals yeah anything like that where people have got a different way of life or different ways uh, making a living i kind of find quite interesting 
uh, like you said, it is by the um, the director of the Full Monty, and there is a sort of very similar themes that um, come through, such as sort of like the the dad trying what he can to make a living for his family against the odds kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting because I think we mentioned earlier how crazy successful the Full Monty was, Full and you, you would expect this director to go on and do bigger films, and you look through his filmography and he really hasn't it's almost like he's chosen to yeah, take this path almost I, I guess um, it's just interesting to see him do such a, a little film that must be what he he likes doing he certainly hasn't been wooed by Hollywood in any way to do films a la George Miller um, well it was even Oscar nominated for best yeah. film for Monty mm-hmm. as well I remember but yeah it's a simple family film worth seeing if you want something easy going on a Sunday afternoon in the winter Okay, so we come to our final film, uh, feature film, which is Waking Fright. This is special for us because it's been recommended to us by uh, Beat Natalie. Oh, we hope that's how you pronounce your name. Um, this is from 1971. It's a thriller directed by Ted Kotcheff, and it stars a young-looking Donald Pleasance and Gary Bond. Uh, this is a film about a school teacher who after a bad gambling debt is marooned in a town full of crazy, drunk, violent men, basically, who threaten to make him just as crazy, drunk and violent. You've seen this film? Yeah, on on the recommendation. I started to enjoy it. I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was really beautifully shot, really kind of displays the harsh, um, disturbing reality of life in the outback in Australia. You can quite imagine how these people, in such isolation with constant beating down of heat yeah. you know could turn you a little bit crazy Definitely. it's one of the few films that's got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes wow. it's very very <clears throat> critically acclaimed highly critically acclaimed and like I said I was enjoying this up to a point not to spoil too much but I guess if you're going to watch this you probably need a bit of a spoiler warning for this particular scene he's, he's a school teacher and he, he talks about having a thousand dollar bond against him uh, having to stay in the system for a year or something. He stumbles across these people playing um, heads and tails, essentially. This massive yep. game of heads and tails and people doubling their money. And he doubles his money up to a point where he's almost got $1,000. And, of course, he loses it. He thinks, if I can get $1,000, then I'm free of this yeah. job. But he loses it. So this is over his uh, Christmas break. And, yeah, he ends up with this with these drunk crazy violent people um who to start with just seem like a you know a group of lads almost just getting drunk and then they take him uh, kangaroo hunting okay um it's sort of set up beforehand that they eat kangaroo meat so you think okay fair enough so this is an english school teacher with these guys who've done this a million times before and he's already going a bit nuts and so they tear us in through the outback in this jeep i guess looking for kangaroos and they find some and they're chasing these kangaroos and they let a dog loose the dog attacks a kangaroo and you see it and you think, hmm, that looks a bit too real and then you see them in this car wide shot driving along chasing this kangaroo and then they run over the kangaroo and you think oh that's a bit too realistic was was that fake what, what's going on they sort of have a bit of a break get a bit more drunk then it comes to night time they go back out and start randomly shooting kangaroos. And you're just seeing kangaroos get shot and falling down and 
dying and you, you're watching them die and you, I'm thinking, this is real, isn't it? This completely ruins my enjoyment of this film because it yeah. becomes way too real. And I look into it and sure enough, all of this kangaroo hunting is real. And so you're witnessing for the purposes of entertainment um, the slaughter of, the slaughter of kangaroos and it was set up that there were kangaroo hunters because they eat the meat fair enough that's yeah. a way of life that's how people survive but they they don't they're just shooting these kangaroos um, it just completely ruined the film for me really because I just think you know fiction should be fiction I mean there is a backstory to it which I'll explain to you um, essentially what they decided to do was they went with a group of licensed kangaroo hunters yeah. and essentially they said these kangaroos would have been shot and killed anyway because they were hunting them for the meat and the pelts so we, we shot what was going on we put it in the film so you think okay but it's still at the same time I'm just like why why do why do I have to witness actual animals dying because it's already a piece of fiction it's not a documentary yeah. it, it just seems so out of place and I guess it was to shock and disturb but it brought well, me, it brought me so far out of the film I, I wasn't going oh these these characters are crazy and horrible people I was like these filmmakers are crazy horrible people I, I was brought so far out of the film which I was up until that point completely immersed in uh, so that was very kind of disappointing so thank you again for that recommendation um, we had another recommendation as well for a film called Sweetie. That recommendation was from a Julie Runes. Uh, apologies though, we uh, ran out of time before we got the chance to watch that before this podcast. We got the chance to watch two short films, one of which you may be aware of, or at least know the, where it went from there, and that's the film Saw. Now before it became the major American big blockbuster franchise that it became, it was first a short film, which you can find as it's titled Shaw Saw 0.5. It features the director James Wan, who went on to direct Saw, uh, the major picture, and it's written by and starring Lee Wanell, or Wanell. Um, but yeah, this is the precursor to the 2004 feature Saw. It was made in 2003, and it features a guy called David who's an orderly at a hospital telling his horrific story to a detective about his time when he was kidnapped and forced to play this game uh, survival I really liked it yeah as, an, as a film on itself mm -hmm. um, the conceptual idea of uh, being placed of humans being placed in a very challenging test um, I'm surprised it hasn't been thought of before. It's usually human beings against the adversities mm -hmm. of ghosts, monsters, you know, otherworldly beings. Um, but this was this was a strange concept where the the villain is almost like an anti-villain, if there is such a thing, mm -hmm. where it forces their victims to enjoy life or mm -hmm. the life they have um, or to realise how much of life they have. It's it's like a, a horror film for the mobile phone generation <laughs> that are stuck in their phones and wander through life on, with a seemingly blissful unawareness. This is the true horror film for those people who have been placed in a position to 
put these things down and consider their life a little better. So the, the, the concept is, is fantastic. And um, the direction was murky. The, the guy's memories are what you'd expect. Um, cloudy, distorted, um, against the backdrop of the clear white stillness of the police station. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was good. I mean, I can't find much information. I'm not sure whether they made it as a short film for festivals and then it went, they decided to expand upon it or if they'd written the, the script for Saw and did this as a sort of a, like a promo to sell the film. Yeah. In either case, that's a great way to get a feature film off the ground. And clearly they did because they didn't just get a feature film off the ground. They launched, a, a, I think, eight, nine film franchise off the back of it all the themes are very similar to the, the feature film itself so if you if you enjoyed the um the feature not that there's much to enjoy but you know if you it's just one of those it's good to see where they where yeah the, the origins yeah for sure and it's great to see these two guys as well doing so well i mean there's a lot of um there's a, a lot made of all the british actors in america yeah uh playing americans but uh, I think there's a lot more um, successful or more successful uh, Australian actors and directors than there are British ones, to be honest. And they're kind of, I don't know, overlooked. I don't know if they fit in yeah. more or what. I mean, if you think of like the biggest stars of the last 20 years, you've got Hugh Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman. Tony Collette. Abs yeah, well, she's not so much an A-lister, but yeah, she's a great actress. But I'm, I'm talking A-listers. Right? Um, I can't remember her name. Played Gladriel in the Lord of the Rings. Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, so while while there are a lot of British actors there, they're not really leading films yeah. in the same way. So yeah, I think uh, I think the Australians are a bit kind of under not under because clearly they're they're out there, but uh, the fact that they're Australian and making movies in Hollywood seems to be downplayed quite a lot. Yeah, the fact that they are Australian. Yeah, British actors are saying you're a British actor yeah. rather than an Australian actor being recognised as an Australian mm -hmm. actor. It's just an actor. Yeah. yeah. So you and found another film. Yeah, I found another film, another short, and it's it's pretty much a comedy sketch in yes. its own right. It's called mm -hmm. Granny Smith. A uh, very simple f simple film about a guy who, after a drunken night's revelry, wake, wakes up in a bit of a state. He's, he, you know, he's, his friends have uh, had fun with him and he can't go into work. So he asks his friend to phone up saying he's ill or something and his friend claims that his granny has passed away. Mm -hmm. Which leads to a nice situation where his workmates decide that they're going to attend his grand's funeral. So this guy, whose grand hasn't died, has to, rather than give up the lie, comes up with this concept where he goes to a random person's funeral, pretends to be the grandson, and goes through all these rituals. Mm -hmm. And you can see where the comedy element takes it off there. Yeah. I really like this thing, mainly because it was built not so much on the... Um, the if it was done in a British or American sort of way, there'd be quirky one-liners thrown yeah. about there'd be canned laughter in the background and that's the sort of thing you get but with this you really felt that this was a guy in a genuine position mm -hmm. that just hadn't got the courage to face up to his own lie yeah. and so he was placed in ordinary circumstances and had to 
work along with it. Mm -hmm. And the tension, the comic comedic tension was there and it was really quite funny. Mm -hmm. Really I liked it for that. I liked for the fact that it was it was almost unpretentious in his comedy. He wasn't standing there going, We are funny. Yeah. It, was, it was there going, This is a guy in a genuinely mm -hmm. uh, a squirmy situation. Yeah, it was it was good. The only thing that let it down for me was you you could see the ending coming a mile off. Yeah. Um possibly because it is a sort of you're right, it's, it's done in a, a good way, but the, the concept is a bit sitcom-ish. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a one-off sketch. Yeah. Uh, still check it out if you want to check it out. It's in from 2014. Director was uh, Julian Lucas. And you found it on YouTube? I did, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a few others on there, but that's the one that we enjoyed. Awesome. Okay, so we mentioned it last time, but um, this should come out before uh, this happens. You've got your play... Reading, performance? Yeah, I'm up. in um, a production uh, that's taking place in Solihull in the West Midlands yeah, here in the UK at a theatre called the Dove House Theatre. takes place in the middle of October from the 17th to the 20th. Sorry, the 18th to the 20th. Um, and it's called Write Off. Um, there's five plays. They're all ten minutes long. And you get to view all five plays, make a vote on which one you find is your favourite, and we have a, a winner at the end of the uh, at the end of the production. Um, the first play is called A Fascination for London, which is about a um, an elderly man who meets up with a prostitute in London, we're missing about um, his wife. Uh, then there's Shell, which is about. Uh, Two guys who managed to grab a gangster, and uh, the one uh, gen the one gentleman who wants to torture the gangster talks to his dead wife about the moral compass code he's following. Then there's Time Telescope, about two friends who meet up after a reunion, rem reminiscing about their years when they were students together at the same school. Then there's My Play, which is called An Epic Tale of Something or Other, about a playwright, ironically struggling to come up with ideas for uh, his epic play and his friend that uh, gives him ever so helpful hints. And the final play is called Neighbour of Zero, about a man with a struggling gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, check it out if you can. Again, it's called Write Off at the Dove House Theatre in Solihull from the 18th to the 20th of October. So next time, Mike. Okay, next time on the next podcast. Well... Before our next almost enemy-related episode, we may have a special edition coming out for Halloween. Keep your eyes open and your ears peeled back for that. But on our next almost enemy-focused podcast, we'll have more stories from making our worst enemy, as well as more movie trivia, recommendations, and reviews. We'll be talking about some of the greatest behind-the-scenes documentaries ever made, including Overnight, Lost in La Mancha, and Heart of Darkness. Get in touch, send us questions, recommendations for features, shorts and crowdfunding campaigns. We'd love to hear from all of you. To keep up to date with Own Worst Enemy, go to the website ownworstenemymovie.com, on Twitter at ownworstenemyuk, and Facebook put a search in for Own Worst Enemy Movie. To keep up to speed with Indie Filmopolis, go to the Twitter account at Filmopolis, that's spelled P-H-I-L-M-O-L-O, 
P-L-I-S. And check out on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube, Indie Filmopolis, spelled I-N-D-I-E, Filmopolis. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And you can follow Phil Pugh, the director, on his Instagram and Twitter page, at Filmmaker. That's P-H-I-L-M underscore M-A-K-E-R. Yeah, and just to backtrack to the YouTube, we're going to start putting the podcasts on YouTube so that a lot of people love or listen to podcasts via YouTube, as I've uh, witnessed. So yeah, if that's your your portal into podcasts, whatever. Your portal into podcasts <laughs> is the YouTube portal. <laughs> you, you'll be able to find us on YouTube. Excellent. Anyway, we need to go. Despite having fought off the zombie hordes, we can sort of see some killer kangaroos in the background on with didgeridoos getting ready to attack. We're off. Bye.